0: Well, thank you very much, Luke. Uh, It's really good to see all of you. And I'm really excited that we get to continue on in our series through the gospel of Mark. Several years ago, when my oldest daughter was in high school and my uh, second daughter was in middle school, one night they were setting the table for dinner. And I remember a conversation taking place between them. And one of them said, hey, did you see that meme? And they start talking. And I said, wait, wait, wait a second. Did did you say, did you see that meme meme? I heard M-E-A-N, and the sentence made no sense to me. My daughter looked at me and like, no, dad, duh, meme. I'd never heard this word before, M-E-M-E. So I I looked it up, and it turns out it's actually a word that's been around for a long time. The original definition of a meme is this. A humorous image—I'm sorry, it's an element of a culture or system of behavior that may be considered to be passed from one individual to another by non-genetic means, especially imitation— uh, kind of like what we just heard Bridget talking about in Kids Creek, imitation. That was a meme. So think like a hairstyle or a fashion, That those would be memes. However, the word has been co-opted and it now means this. So Oxford Dictionary updated their definitions to add a humorous image, video, piece of text, etc., that is copied, often with slight variations and spread rapidly by internet users. Well, it turns out, I have been, I've known all about memes for years, even though I didn't know the word. Because way before Twitter or Facebook or TikTok were there to help pass along these memes, we had email. I remember back in the day, I used to get probably at least once a day, some sort of textual meme in my inbox. And sometimes they were funny enough that I would forward them on. Sometimes they were funny, got a chuckle, but I still hit delete but the majority of the time they were just dumb. I just hit delete immediately and promptly forgot about them. But every once in a while, a meme would stick with me and I would remember it. And there was one I remembered called how to be safe. Now, this was like 20 years ago. I didn't think I'd be able to find it, but I did some digging and kids, guess what? I have found out of the archives after doing an internet like archeological dig, I have found this prehistoric data, this ancient meme called how to be safe and I bring it to you today. Again, over 20 years old, it's ancient. The meme is how to be safe. Number one, avoid riding in automobiles. They're responsible for 20% of all deaths. Number two, Don't travel by air, rail, or water because 16% of all accidents occur on these forms of transportation. So by this point, you're probably thinking, oh, great, I guess I'm going to just have to walk everywhere. Ah, sorry. Number three, avoid walking on streets or sidewalks because 14% of all accidents happen to pedestrians. So now you're thinking, oh, great, I guess I'm just going to be stuck at home. Well, sorry. Number four, do not stay at home. 17% of all accidents happen in the home. However you will be pleased to learn that only 0.001% of all accidents happen in church. And these are usually related to previously known physical disorders. So therefore, logic tells us that the safest place in the world for you to be at any time is at church. Oh, I wish that was true. Unfortunately, it is not. And keep in mind, this is 20 years ago, way before any sort of pandemic that where you may have been able to show up at church and end up getting the coronavirus. This is a, in a day and an age when people could show up at church and be hurt by hypocritical leaders, a, a critical spirit, by gossip, lies, twisted theology, division, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, even spiritual abuse. You know, these things may not affect us physically, so therefore they can't get put into the stats of physical accidents, but they wound us nonetheless. And the problem is when we get wounded like this, it causes us to pull away, to to push others away, trying to create some sort of safety barrier, a social distancing in order to keep us safe. But while social distancing supposedly works for uh, COVID-19, it doesn't work so well for our hearts. Because you see, when we find ourselves emotionally distanced from others, pushing them away, we actually put ourselves in a very precarious position. To help you understand the position, let me paint two scenarios for you. In both scenarios, we're gonna imagine that your house has burned down and the only thing saved is you and your family. And you have no insurance, you have no savings in our scenario. And so when your house burns down, you lose everything. Now, in scenario number one, because you have been emotionally hurt, you've distanced yourself from others. You've pushed everyone away trying to keep yourself safe, but now you have no one to lean on. And so you find yourself sleeping in a homeless shelter. You get your food from a food bank. You're you're wearing clothes that someone was just going to throw out. But in scenario number two, because you have these relationships— When your house burns down, someone invites you over and they allow you to take a shower so you can wash off the smoke and the soot. They give you some food to eat, a place for you and your family to sleep. A group of friends takes up a collection of gift cards so that you can go out and buy new clothes. And they even start a GoFundMe campaign so that you get enough money for a down payment on a new house. Both scenarios, your house burns down. And so I would imagine in both scenarios, it's really hard. But scenario number two it's so much easier because of those relationships in your life. I believe that God has created you for relationship. And so if you have been hurt, I'm sorry. And, and I, I don't want to minimize it and oversee it, I like, like wash it away. But you need to not be pushing people away, but somehow through God's grace, be allowing people to come back in so that you can be healed and move forward. And God's plan, God's place for this type of relationship is the church. Today, we're gonna see Jesus heal someone. Like we did last week, this person should have been considered an outcast. But unlike last week's person who definitely was an outcast, this person was not because there was a certain group of people who did not treat them like an outcast. We're gonna see a beautiful portrait of the church. And my hope and prayer is that if you have been hurt by the church, that today you will not think I'm trying to just wash it away, pretend like the church is perfect. It's not. But what I want you to see is what a healthy church should look like. That a healthy church is a place that helps to bring you to Jesus so that you can be made whole. But there's something else we're going to see today. It's not just the church. We're going to see Jesus. As we look at Jesus, we're going to see him do something very, very surprising We're going to discover he doesn't always give us what we want. He always gives us, though, what is best. And for us today, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, you're going to have to wrestle with, can you trust Jesus even when he doesn't give you what you want? These are the two things that I hope you will walk away with today. So if you brought a Bible, would you please open it up right now to Mark chapter? Uh, if you're a first-time guest with us at Riverwood, we really don't care if you use a paper Bible like I typically do, or if you use the digital Bible on a phone like most of our church family does. If you have a phone but don't have a Bible to it, uh, go over to our notes section, navigate down to the bottom of it. In the next steps, there's a link to go and download a Bible, or you can also use the Bible tab that's right in there uh, next to the notes tab as well, and you can navigate to Mark chapter two. If you have no Bible at all, uh, we're going to be putting the scripture up on the screen so you can read along with us. Uh, I'm going to be using the English Standard Version today, but we really don't mind which translation you use. We just want you to have one that's reliable and that helps you to learn and understand who God is. So today we're going to read Mark 2 verses 1 through 12, but before we do, let us pray. All right, Heavenly Father, we are now coming to your Holy Scriptures. You wrote these scriptures way before any of us were ever put on this earth, and these scriptures will be here far after we have passed. And so, Lord, help us today to come to this, not trying to filter it through our understanding and eyesight and culture, but instead to dip in and see what you put there that has lasted throughout the generations, and let us hear your truth, because I believe your truth will set us free. So today, Father, I pray you'd very vividly paint to us what a a healthy church should look like, as well as leading us to a place of truly trusting Jesus. So open up Mark 2 to us today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So join me. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. A few weeks ago, we saw Jesus in Capernaum, which he kind of established as his home base. And he was doing ministry there and was starting to become very, very popular. And so there's one point where he slipped out away from everyone to go sleep, I mean, uh, to go pray while everyone else was still asleep, And eventually Simon Peter and his other disciples went and found him. They're like, hey, everyone's gathered. Come on, we got to go. The crowd's here. And Jesus said to them, actually, we need to travel to other regions and I need to take this gospel message. And so they, they traveled about. So last week we saw him dealing with this leper, this outcast. And this took place in another city. We don't know which one, but now we know he's returned back to Capernaum. Now it says that he was at a house. Uh, we, we don't know if this was his own home. I saw some uh, scholars this week that, that believe it was actually the home of Simon and Andrew where some of the previous ministry was taking place. But all we know is he's inside and he's preaching and the house is completely full. One scholar I saw, uh, read this week said that a house, the maximum they could have held was about 50 people. And now you've got people outside trying to hear through the window, hear through the doorway. They're, they're just hoping to get a glimpse of this amazing teaching rabbi. Well, the story says that these four men start carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. And as they approach the house, the, the, there, there's no way they can get in. Well, some of the houses back then, they would have had like a ladder or some sort of stairway up to the roof. They would use the roof area as like another uh, area for, for work or, or hanging out. And what the, the ceiling was created by putting a bunch of branches across and then covering it with mud and letting it harden. And so these guys find a way up there, create this hole, they rip it out and they lower their friend down to Jesus. Well, this, as you heard, created a very interesting conversation between Jesus and some of the Jewish scribes. And the story finishes with the man walking out completely healed. And today, as I said, I, I want you to see two things. I want you to see the church and I want you to see Jesus. But for us to truly appreciate these two things, we're going to need to look at this man on the mat first. I, I want you to imagine what his life was like. It, we don't know if he was paralyzed from the neck down or the waist down, but we do know he was kind of stuck on this mat. This mat was probably about six foot by three foot. And if he was paralyzed from the neck down, his entire worldview consisted of nothing but ceilings and cloud formations. He was literally looked down upon. And, and he was figuratively looked down upon. In, in the Roman Empire where uh, Israel was under at this time, Rome had a very low view of anyone who had a handicap. In fact, they had a law that any baby born with some sort of handicap, some sort of deformity was to be immediately executed. It was seen as a sign of weakness and Rome was strong. So a guy like this, he would have been considered subhuman to the Romans. But it wasn't just the Romans that that looked down on guys like this. Even some of the God-fearing Jews did as well. In John chapter nine, Jesus is with some of his disciples and they're at this pool called Siloam. And there is this blind man begging and the disciples start talking about him as if he's not even human. I mean, he's right there. He can hear, he's just blind. But they start asking Jesus questions. They say, Rabbi, was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? They they did not view him as like fully human and didn't honor him in that moment. That would have been the life of our paralyzed man in Mark 2. Most people would not have really honored him as fully human because he couldn't walk, he couldn't work, he would have been dependent on others, so therefore he was subhuman. Last week, I encouraged you to not insert yourself into the biblical story. I I cautioned you because to insert yourself into the story is to to twist it. And and what you do is you're trying to put yourself in a place and then receive what maybe someone got. And and the temptation this week would be to to put yourself in the place of the the man and then whatever Jesus did for him, that you would receive it. And so you would try to claim it and and, and God would heal you. But even though I I don't want you to insert yourself into the story, I, I do think it's wise for you to empathize because you're really not that much different than this guy. I mean, you may not be physically paralyzed, and if you are watching this and you are paralyzed, you spend your time in a wheelchair instead of a six-by-three mat. But what I want you to realize is that just as this man's mat was a a sign of his weakness and possibly could have been an embarrassment to him, that you have a figurative mat as well. That, That deep inside of you is something that is a weakness, and if it were to be discovered, if too many people knew about it, you would be embarrassed. Maybe your mat is an addiction. It, 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 you've kept it secret. And if that secret were discovered, it, you, it, you'd feel like your world was just ruined. You'd be so totally embarrassed. Maybe your mat is a lack of trust. Like you, you don't trust your spouse, you don't trust your coworkers, you don't trust your friends at school, you don't trust your professor, you, you don't trust your God, you, you don't trust definitely a pastor, and sometimes you don't even trust yourself. And that lack of trust causes you to end up pushing people away. Or maybe there was an incident in your past that is your mat. Maybe you were raped. Maybe a, a loved one died very violently and suddenly. Maybe you feel responsible for that incident that happened. And and, and that past experience, that past memory, it keeps you chained. It's like you are paralyzed and you feel weak. So often when our mats get discovered and that weakness is seen, not only are we embarrassed, we often begin to get angry. And in our anger, we begin to push people away as we ourselves try to pull away from them. This past week, I had the joy of catching up one of, with one of my really good friends. Uh, we used to be accountability partners years and years ago. He and his family ended up moving out of state. Uh, the church they joined, he ended up uh, over several years later becoming an elder there. He uh, just recently uh, stepped off the elder board. His, his term came to an end, but he was telling me about something that happened right before he rolled off the board. Uh, one of his fellow elders uh, started not showing up for their meetings. Uh, said he wasn't feeling well. And it it continued. It went on just several weeks. And finally he said, I I think I caught a bug from international business travel. Well, the problems continued going on and on. And pretty soon the elders are starting to get really worried because this isn't just another elder. This is one of their friends. And so they actually went and visited him. And then they saw him, he had visibly lost weight and they began to get really concerned. Well, then... Some people would say it was by accident. Some would say it was by the the providence of God. They discovered he was actually HIV positive and had full-blown AIDS. As they went to talk to their friend about this, he told them a story of how he'd been raped in a locker room at the gym. And it broke their hearts and they, they hurt for him and they're trying to seek to love him. But as they were working through everything, it eventually was discovered that that was a lie. And he'd actually been having several random hookups. As they sought to love him, he totally pushed them away. He got angry, and he is no longer a part of that church because his mat was exposed. This is often what happens to us when our mats are seen. Not only are we embarrassed, we push people away. We get angry, and we try to pull away. The man on the mat in Mark 2 doesn't. He does not pull away from these four friends. How do I know? Because if he had pushed them away, and you got to keep in mind, he could not just like run away. He's, he's stuck on the mat. So the only way, the only weapon he would have had to push them away was his mouth. And so he would have verbally assaulted them. Stay away, get out, out of here. I don't want your help. And he would have just become mean and nasty. And if he had treated them like that, there's no way in the world they would pick him up and haul him all the way to the house to see Jesus. There's no way they find a way onto the roof. There's no way they take the time to ruin this roof, to drop him down to Jesus. So I know he did not push them away. Instead, he let them close despite the embarrassment of his mat, despite his weakness, he let them in. That now allows us to move and look at these four men because they're going to show us how the church should operate when it comes to loving one another. So if you still have your Bibles there, look at it in verse five. In in verse three, we get to meet these four men. We see them in verse four, then take him up onto the roof and, and lower him down. In verse five, it says this. And when Jesus saw their faith, we Americans, especially us Iowans, we really don't like to see people help us. We're very individualistic. I mean, just to show you how individualistic we are, just look at sports. We don't just root for a sports team. We wear jerseys with someone's name on the back and we want to know their statistics. It's all about that individual. When we watch a movie, some of us, we don't just appreciate the story for what it is. We want to know what actor and actress that was, what other things they were in, who directed it. We see what awards were given at the end of the season to which movies. Even, this even gets applied to church. Like we don't just talk about a church by its name. We even will identify it by its pastor. I've even heard people say, oh, Riverwood, isn't that Aaron Bird's church? By the way, no, it's not Aaron Bird's church. This is Jesus's church and it's our church. But this is how we as Americans think. It's all about the individual. But Jesus, when he sees that man coming down, he does not see the man's faith. It says he sees their faith faith. It wasn't about the faith of the one. It was about the faith of the five. He sees them as a whole. To me, this is a beautiful picture of the church. When Leanne and I were in Venezuela working at a school for missionary children, we would hold uh, services on Sundays in English on our school campus. We had quite a few short-term missionaries like my wife and myself who didn't know Spanish all that well. And so we would worship in English during the school year. But when there was no school, we would often go out into the, the communities and join up with one of the local uh, Venezuelan churches. So we had some missionary friends that taught at the school and then invited us to be a part of their church. So one summer we went and we joined them. Now, I'll just confess, I had four years of Spanish in high school, and I barely know anything. Uh, I could tell you a few things, but they're not worth the time here. Basically, though, I would only get about 25% of the sermon. Uh, My wife was a little better at being able to listen and catch English, so she would get about 50% of the sermon. And so our friends would often have to translate and help us understand. And one day, someone stood up in the church and started talking, and they started telling us what, what they were saying and what was going on. And they said that someone else in the church had lost their job. And so they were trying to arrange meals for these people. And someone else spoke up and said, hey, they've got a broken vehicle. I can help get that fixed. And someone else says, well, hey, we're gonna watch their children so they can go out and apply for other jobs. We basically just watched this church on a Sunday morning surround this family to carry them, to walk with them through all of this. That's what these four men did. They walked with this paralyzed man by walking for him. And I want to point out four things that these guys do that I think we as a church could really learn from them. The first thing is that these guys were intentional. They were intentional. This was not four guys who were just walking around town who randomly happened to converge at this one spot where there just happened to be this uh, paralyzed beggar. And they're like, oh, let's pick him up. And then they just randomly happened to run into Jesus and find a way to get this guy healed. No, there was intention behind all of this. And that leads into the second thing. Not only was there intention, but they made a conscious decision. They made a decision. They chose to be involved with this guy. Too often we don't make the decision to get involved with other people because it just is then easier to kind of pull out. You know, we, we might attend a worship service, but we, we don't want to get involved in a small group. We, we don't want to get involved in a ministry area because if, if the pastor says something we don't like or there's some things that, that just don't go the way we think they should, it's just then easier to, to get out. So we just kind of keep ourselves isolated. We dip in just enough to get out of what we want, but we don't make the decision to get into the relationships. And yet we're cheating ourselves and we're actually cheating then those other people. These guys, they chose to get involved in this guy's life. I mean, yes, he had a mat. He couldn't do anything for himself, but they didn't care. They loved him. They cared for him. And so they chose to be involved. And that leads then to the third thing that we see. They shared in his suffering. These guys could have just looked at him and said, oh, buddy, I'm so sorry you're paralyzed. That really stinks. You know what? I'm going to pray for you. And then they just head off to their job. No, these guys took the time to get down there, to lift him up, to take the time. We have no idea how far they walked to go through all the work of getting him up on top of the roof. It was, if it was just a ladder, I'm sure that was quite a, a, a chore to try and get him up there. They get him on top, they rip out the roof and they lower this guy down. They shared in his suffering. Uh, Some of you don't know, but uh, this March, uh, my family and I had to self-quarantine. My wife took our two boys on a a trip for spring break, went and visited some of uh, her family. And then they get back, and two days later, the uh, governor of Iowa says, uh, if you were out of state for spring break, we need you to uh, basically self-quarantine, self-isolate for 14 days. And so we did. We did. I had permission, I contacted the governor's office and found out that as a a faith leader, I had permission to still come down here and record these uh, sermons, but otherwise we were supposed to be stuck at home, which meant we weren't supposed to be going to the grocery store or or going to the gas station or go anywhere, which meant we had to rely on some of you. And I'll be honest, it was hard. I didn't like it because I was perfectly capable of going to Walmart myself. And yet I had to let someone else do this for me. And you guys did it with joy. You, you said it was no problem. You were happy to pick things up for us, to drop them off on our step. You said, hey, if you need anything else, don't hesitate to let us know. You shared in our suffering. That's what the church does. The church is intentional. They make a decision to serve. They share in each other's suffering. And then the fourth thing we see is that they didn't just talk. They did. These guys didn't just say, you know what? It'd be a good idea for us to like go get them some help and then do nothing. I think sometimes we in the Christian world, we're really, really good at this. We know the Bible verses about serving other people, and so we talk about it, but then it's just so easy to get caught up in our own little world. These guys didn't do that. They actually followed through on what they said they would do, and they didn't do it out of duty. If this was duty, when they showed up at the house, they would have said, oh man, it's too full. Ah, oh, well, hey, we tried. No, these guys were committed to their friend. and So they were going to see it through. They didn't just talk about it. They actually did it. So these guys were intentional. They made a conscious decision. They then shared in his suffering and they followed through on what they said they were going to do. This to me is a picture of the church. This is how we are to be. Loving each other intentionally, making a conscious decision, suffering with one another. And when we say we're going to do something, we don't just say it, we actually do it. We can't stop there. I mean, we, we need to know how the church is to operate. But if we stopped right there, we're missing probably the most important thing in this passage. Because remember last week, we dipped back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And we had to be reminded of what Mark's purpose was in writing this. His whole purpose was to show us Jesus. And so while it's important for us to look at these four guys, to maybe learn some things from the guy on the mat, we can't stop there. We've got to go and look at Jesus because there's something Jesus does here that is very challenging. And if you want your faith in, get, in God to go deeper, you have to look at this. And it's in that same exact verse, verse five. The first half we saw already that, they, uh, that when Jesus saw their faith, well, we're gonna continue. He, Jesus, said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now these four guys did not bring their friend to have his sins forgiven. They, they brought him for healing. So why does Jesus start with your sins are forgiven instead of rise up and walk? Remember a few weeks ago, we got to hear Jesus for the first time in the book of Mark. We got to hear his message. And he said that the time is now here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, he was saying, I did not come to overthrow the Roman government Because he knew as as God, who's lived eternally, he had seen kingdoms rise and fall. So he knew this Roman empire that had risen, that it would one day fade and there would be another kingdom behind it. So he ends up saying, I'm not here to overthrow Rome. I'm here to overthrow the kingdom that has been ruling and reigning spiritually since Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. I've come to overthrow sin. And so for Jesus, the more important thing was to deal with this guy's spiritual needs than his physical needs. You know, see, Jesus knew that in, the, in heaven, this guy would be running and walking. So in Jesus's mind, this paralysis, it, it's temporary. What Jesus knew this guy needed was the spiritual change, the forever change. That is why Jesus starts with your sins are forgiven. So this guy, he came looking for the physical healing, but that's not what he first got. He got the spiritual healing because Jesus knew that what he needed wasn't just freedom from the imprisonment of his mat. He needed freedom from the imprisonment of sin. Too often we come to Jesus for what we're hoping to get from him. We we, we come to him asking for a new job. But maybe the reason he isn't answering that prayer is because he's wanting us to learn to depend upon him. Sometimes we pray for something new, like a new car or a new house, but maybe God isn't giving us that because he's wanting us to learn contentment. Sometimes we pray that he would remove the addiction from us, but he's not removing it because he wants us to replace the addiction with him. Too often we come to him wanting something on the surface, wanting something physically, wanting something in this world, but the reason he doesn't give it to us is because he wants to give us something better. The Apostle Paul had a very similar type of moment He had this mat. He called it a thorn in the flesh. And he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he prayed three times for God to remove this thorn, this mat from him. And here's what he said God responded with. This is 2 Corinthians 12 verse nine. But he, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, Paul's attention was all on this thorn. We don't know exactly what his thorn was, what his weakness was. But what we do know is that he kept praying, God, take this away. And God basically says, no, because my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul goes on to say, so therefore I will boast in my weakness. I will trust God because Paul knew that if God says no or God says wait, it's actually for his best which means you have to ask yourself, will I trust Jesus? There may be something that you are praying for hard. You keep praying about it day after day after day and God just does not seem to be answering and you're getting frustrated, you're getting angry. Why isn't he giving me the healing? Because maybe God is saying, I've got something better for you. And so can you trust him? Can you trust that when he says, wait, It's because he says, I've already given you the best. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you, put your faith in him. Jesus came to earth to die on a cross for your sins. And he now invites you to follow him. He rose again from the dead so you don't have to follow some dead sage. You could follow a risen savior. But too often when someone says, okay, yeah, I'll follow Jesus. We put a, a butt on there. We'll say, well, yeah, I'll follow him, but I need a spouse. I'll, I'll follow him, but I need a new job. I'll follow him, but I, I need more money. And we come to him wanting some sort of benefit. And maybe what God is saying, no, no, no. I can give you those things, but that's not the best. Maybe for you, it isn't to hear rise up and walk. Maybe what you first need to hear is, son, your sins are forgiven. So right now, wherever you're at, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, let us just take a moment to pray. Let's just take a moment to express our our, our trust in God and allow him to do in us what he needs to do because then he can turn us into the church that we need to be. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, bow down right now before you to say we trust you Father, for some of us, it is easy to say we trust you. For others of us, this is so difficult. I just pray right now for the person that has been deeply, deeply spiritually hurt. I am so thankful that they've stuck through this sermon to this place, that they've been able to stay through this worship service. And I pray, Father, for your healing grace to come upon them, that you right now would work in them and you would heal them. But God, help them to see that their healing will be found in you, and in your gospel. And then God, I pray that you would surround them with true believers who would truly love them like Jesus would love them so that you might heal them so that they can be whole, they can become more like Christ, and then they can go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. So Father, I pray that you'd make river with that type of church, that, that we would be that church right now, that we wouldn't wait for this pandemic to end before we do these things, that even now we'd find the ways to serve, to wait to, to share in each other's suffering, to make this decision to intentionally be the church and to love each other through this time. And Father, there's a world out there that desperately needs you. Help us to be the ones to go to them. But Lord, I pray right now for the person that has not put their faith in you and their sense in you calling them to yourself. Lord, I pray that right now you would just lovingly break them of their, the, their selfishness, uh, of their, their self-attention, that you would help them to fully lay everything down before you and that they wouldn't just want the benefits of following you, that they would realize that getting you is enough. So Father, would you just minister to your people right now as they pray? Would you draw them to your throne? Would you envelop them with your love and grace? Would you begin to heal them? And help them to hear, Son, your sins are forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.